have about 200 cadets a year take an environmental engineering sequence that it's a three course sequence that they're not environmental engineering majors, but they may be humanities or bottom line, we have cadets who are studying the environment and they're leaders and they're going to go out and lead their units and lead the army. And, you know, some of the things that we teach them, I'm going to leave you with our curriculum and and you can take a look at that. Really, uh, we are teaching cadets about the environment that they live in, that they'll train in and that they'll be operating in, not just here in the U.S., but around the world as we send them out for here. So we do. We teach them that it's important to take care of this precious resource or the resources that we have so that the next generation has them to train on or, or just enjoy. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Colonel Mark Reed heads West Point's Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. I met him through another guest on the show, Colonel Everett Spain, so I recommend listening to that episode as well. Two myths about the military have unraveled in me as a result of seeing West Point from the inside and talking to these generals and colonels and heads of departments. One is that the military practices command and control leadership, and someone of any rank can just order people to do something and they'll get cultural change, let alone compliance. On the contrary, you'll hear from Mark how people lead with compassion and understanding. Now, of course, this is outside of combat. This is in a learning environment. But he also talks about how they lead in other countries when they practice nation building and things like that. I think that's the direction of the military these days. I can't say for sure. This is what, just what I'm getting, but listen for yourself. The second is that the military wouldn't care about the environment or their effect on it. Listening to Mark, I hear genuineness and authenticity in his passion for building his department and helping it grow, for the missions that he helps people serve outside. So far, I think one could say a lot of what they're doing is fixing what they've broken, but I think I see that they're looking forward to sustainability, at least in the training areas and certainly in their stewardship in other countries. The military reacts to the nation's values. That comes from you and me, although they also influence us back. I see them as ahead of us in many ways, especially compared to corporate leadership. I think a lot of corporate leaders could stand to learn from West Point. It is one of America's top institutions for teaching leadership. Let's listen to Mark. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Mark Reed. How are you doing? Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here with you. And you are a colonel here at West Point? I am. I just want to make sure I'm clear. Everything we're going to talk about are my own personal views and, and not necessarily the views of the Army or West Point or the government. Ah, cool. I appreciate that that was important to cover. And I think of you as the head of the Environmental Engineering Department. Do I have that right? Well, it's, uh, the, the full title is the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. So yes, environmental engineering is part of it, but just a part of it. So. Okay. Yes. And that's not what I think everyone thinks of as, as what someone would come to West Point to study or has come to West Point to teach. Uh, I presume you went to West Point. I did. I graduated in 1992. Actually, in the very first class, along with Colonel Spain, one of your other guests, uh, mm-hmm. uh, we were both environmental engineers, and we were in the first class that was offered environmental engineering as a major at West Point, and both of us opted to major in that. How did 
maybe this is before your time, but I, I wanted to know how the military, how the army decided to make it a, a major initiative and how you personally decided to go into it. Yeah, so I know a little bit of the backstory of, of really how it became a major at West Point. And we had a number of people here at West Point who had studied the environment in various forms. A, a lot of people looking at water. Uh, our Corps of Engineers has a, a big emphasis on on water, uh, water quality, waterways, maintaining inland waterways, um, dams and, and, and river systems, the health of aquatic ecosystems. And that's, that's a large part of what they do, fisheries, things like that. So I think that's part of, part of the background behind how environmental engineering became an option here. But also uh, the Army has, in the past, we, we made some messes and we needed to clean those messes up. And a lot of times things we didn't even realize that we were doing, whether it was waste disposal methods or, or, or things that we were in ammunition, things that we were using our rangelands and training areas. And uh, so there were, you know, by the, the 70s and 80s, I think a lot of people looking going, hey, I don't know if we can kind of sustain this way of doing business. You know, there's actually, we're not just degrading, there's there's maybe even some human health impacts to the way we're doing business. So environmental engineering was really born as, as a discipline. In many cases, it grew out of civil engineering. But, and here at West Point, uh, back in the in the 80s, when some of the, the senior officers then were looking at, well, what, you know, what's the future? What what are some areas that we need to explore as we update and keep our curriculum up to date here? And environmental engineering emerged. And there were a lot of people that were kind of naysayers at first, like, oh, this, is, this isn't going to go anywhere. This is just kind of a, you know, a flash. And interestingly, some of those same people a little a few years earlier had, had said the same thing about this, this new field of computer science that, <laughs> that you know, what, what good might that do? So, yeah, so in, in the mid-80s, they kind of put a plan together and, and op- offered it as a major. And it was, it's been well subscribed to ever since. Let me see if I get this right. I would have thought that the interest in environmental engineering would be we got to put bridges up really fast and we got to, if we're going to support, you know, supply our, our armies and so forth. And now I think from what you said, that's what it may be something before environmental engineering was how do we engineer solutions to bring supplies and so forth. But you left messes. And so it's not really a combat thing now, but it's part of the army mission, I guess, is not just what happens in battle or to prepare for that, but also you have a big institution that, that sustains itself. And people, so some people said, we're leaving a mess. We can't keep doing this. Why not though? I mean, you're the army. <laughs> Deal with the mess. I mean, that sounds like there must've been some, some internal change or some, some people thinking about it in a, in a different way than they, they did before. Sure. I think a couple different things going on. I think first is just sort of a, a societal awareness as we, as we looked around and things were happening and in the 60s and 70s, and we and we looked at some of the damage. You know, when when things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act were born, that that we realized that as population increases and some of our industrial practices weren't sustainable. We didn't. I don't know that we called it sustainability back then. That's kind of what it's what it's evolved into now. But I think there was still an awareness that that possibly the way we were doing business, not possibly, we had now the scientific evidence to show that that the way we had done business, whether it's industry or a military, it left an impact, it left an imprint on the landscape, and that that wasn't, uh, it wasn't healthy for the landscape, it wasn't healthy for ecosystems, and ultimately it wasn't healthy for humans that were using and were dependent on those ecosystems. So I don't think it was anything the Army, were we out front? I don't think we probably were. I think we were kind of just moving along with the times and this awareness that but we have lots of equipment. We use things that are dangerous, uh, whether that's fuels and you know um, petroleum products or ammunition, 
And we needed to be smart about the way that we process those and dispose of them uh, when when we were when we're done using them or you know when they're expended. So, uh, okay, I was listening to what you're saying. I hope listeners rewind. I just showed my age. <laughs> Go back a little bit and listen to what you just said because if you, I think you could have been a tree hugging hippie and said very similar things to that. Now you're not. I don't read you as one. <laughs> I, well, I've not been called that, but. And is there a disconnect between most people's view, uh, between this environment of West Point, duty, honor, country, patriotism, and care for the land, the joy of of the cleanliness and purity of the land and the water? Is there any reason why this is, I'm having trouble fitting these together. Yeah, it's so, so on the one level, I can understand why, you know, you might think, well, military, you know, they don't really care about, I mean, and our job, really, our job is to fight, the Army's job is to fight and win our nation's wars. It's not always a pretty thing. It's it's proven to be a pretty necessary thing over our history. So yeah, our, our primary mission is not to be stewards of the environment. What we found though, let me give you a couple different examples of it, really two kind of where, where I think we've seen this manifest itself. One, maybe in the, probably the fifties into the sixties, and then one probably has emerged more recently in our, in the past 18 years of conflict that we've been in. So the first example is we have we rely on increasingly have relied on as our vehicles have gotten bigger our weapons longer range on large areas to train our military particularly in the post world war II era there are are training areas across the country many of the bigger ones are out west for for obvious reasons you know, that we have large areas of, of basin and range land that uh, that the government um, has used or or at least controlled for a long time, and some of those areas are military training areas. But we have areas in the east as well. Um, some you know places like Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Fort Benning, Georgia. E- even here at West Point, we have a we have a training area. And what we realized, particularly places where we were training using vehicles, that uh, we were wearing out the land, and and we go out and train and train and train, and, and we were not taking care of that land that that belonged to the military. It was government land. And what we found is that the training areas were degrading to a point where either uh, sometimes we straight up couldn't use them if it becomes just this soupy mud bath that looks something like, you know, the surface of the moon or, or like no man's land in World War II. You can't maneuver a tank out there. So, I, for instance, uh, one, one of our training, I've been stationed at one of our training areas in Germany. And um, two times a year, we, we stop, we give that land, it's, it's a rest period, it's a pause in training. Oh. And we, we basically... Uh, Go out and we we will reseed areas. We'll plant trees. We'll put in, we'll restake areas that are off limits for vehicular movement, and and we may change those. And we'll assess and we'll really look. Hey, are there areas that we need to put off limits so that it can recover a little bit? And, and really, we've done that across all of our training areas. So environmental management, it's really kind of land management of our own training areas was. And we realized if we didn't take care of the land that we had, we're not going to get any more land. I mean, the population's not going down. Population pressures. You know, we have encroachment. Uh, on on many of our training areas uh, as population of local communities increases, we weren't going to get any more land. So we really had to take care of the land that we did have and and make it so that it's, yes, we're protecting the species that are there, but we're also protecting it first and foremost so that the next generation of soldiers has quality land to train on. So This is incredible. Why is the army not, this should be like shouted from the rooftop because most people I think most people want to emulate the behavior that the army is actually doing. And I think most people don't know that the army is doing this. Like, so one, I hope people listen to this. If you're thinking, should I plant some trees? Go for it. I mean, you guys, is it actual, do you hire people to do it or you guys are doing it yourselves? Both. Okay. Both. And 
okay, you, you, the benefit is that you can come back and reuse stuff. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you, you're not looking like this is a sacrifice. Is, is there any loss in security? Is there any loss in performance in doing this? It's a constraint that you adapt around. So yes, there are. I mean, I can think of times when uh, one of the, the endangered or protected species that we've that we've really kind of struggled with. Okay, how do we? That, that's present on a lot of our training areas in the southeast is is the red cockaded woodpecker. And you say that word, and there will people that will bristle like, "Oh, the red cockaded woodpecker." But the, and I, I don't know who in the federal government basically said, "Look, you know, it's a protected species. You can't. There are certain things that you can't do around these nesting trees." And and so the army is like, "Well, okay, what?" Well, they're right smack in the middle of our training areas. And I can remember as a young lieutenant at Fort Polk, Louisiana, addressing this issue. And we all, all my soldiers in my platoon, we had to know, okay, well, and what we did is the army went out and we, we would paint trees a certain color. We'd paint a band around them. Like, okay, if you knew, and I can't remember if it was a red band or a yellow band, but that's a red cockaded woodpecker tree. And then around it, there's a certain perimeter that, that, that scientists, environmental scientists or biologists determine that if you did things like discharge weapons or explosions within this, it would disturb, particularly certain times of year when they're nesting, it would disturb the species. So, so basically around this would be a perimeter of sort of red painted, you know, bands around red trees. And so you had this perimeter and you just kind of knew it just became part of your operating your mission when you're out on a mission. Like, okay, well, I just have to, it's a constraint, kind of like a rule of engagement that we have when we're deployed. So, you know, is it the same as it would be when we were deployed? No, but it's, it's just another thing that you... You just got used to and you adjusted to it and adapted to it. Did it degrade training? Well, it could have if we didn't manage it the right way. And probably in some cases it has put constraints on us. I know there have been certain areas that, you know, for whatever reason, there may be a protected tortoise species or something that's, you know, that, that will put an entire area off limits. And that's that's a constraint. But by and large, I think we, you know, we try to work around those and, and adapt and adjust as we would, whether it's an environmental regulation that we have to comply by or some other rule of engagement that we have to follow. I don't know how it looked to this. And listeners can't see, I'm totally fascinated by this because I, I did not expect to hear that. I feel like this country, like regulation, so many people resist and, and oppose regulation, but you guys, it sounds like it's like, okay, that's a constraint. We work around, we go into battle. If there's a hospital, we can't bomb around there. I don't know what the rules of engagement are, but there, there's like the Geneva convention thing sure. like that. And this is like that. And I'm sure that internally there was like, are we putting the nation at risk by doing this? And somehow it came out, we're not, I guess. Well, there's, you know, don't get me wrong. There have been struggles and legal battles. And, you know, it's not like the army's just going to say, well, sure, you know, we're going to put this whole area off limits. I mean, there's, we, we do sort of look, you know, here, and we looked at the cost and the benefits. And, and sometimes we can't just agree on those or, or figure out a workaround. Sometimes those do go into sort of the, you know, a higher system, whether that would be, you know, a law that, that, that Congress implements or, or maybe it goes into the courts and the courts have to decide. But and don't ask me to cite any specifically because I'm not have to get our lawyers in to do that. But even in that area, I mean, I, as a cadet, as a young environmental engineer, I took a whole semester course in environmental law. So I was I was aware of these things and understood sort of the history behind them. And, and part of what makes me so fascinated about it is that also I, I talked about American culture about these things, but also on an individual level, I feel like a lot of people feel like a lot of people think these little things don't make a difference and the big things are too hard. But you're talking about some major big things that that a group that you guys have come around to, you're doing things that are challenging and it's not hurting you. And, and I feel like it's it's strengthening the core in some way. And I hope that people listen to that. If people are at home are thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. That while well, the army is doing it, and 
think they don't have to. I mean, I think you guys could probably get around a lot of things if you say national security or something like that. And yet, is it making you guys stronger? Well, I think so. So let me now go. I mentioned that there was another area I wanted to talk about in this. Let me touch on that. But so, so I think, I think if we're careful, it, it does make us stronger. One of the advantages that we have is that we're very hierarchical. So if the army, big army says, we figured out a way we're going to protect the red cockaded woodpecker, everyone else is going to follow suit. So it's not like my soldiers in my platoon had this sort of in, in this compelling you know, desire to say that most of them didn't even know what a red cockaded woodpecker was. Mm-hmm. They just, we just knew that, Hey, we have to, we have to protect the, the species and, and, and we can't go in this area and, and, and here's why, and here's what, what, what it looks like. So, so the hierarchy of the organization does certainly help, you know, it's not always just a bottom up thing. Let me talk to you about another more recent area where I've seen sort of an awareness of, of the environment and just this idea of stewardship, stewarding the environment uh, play out. And that's that's um, when we're in a, a deployed environment and we're doing what we call nation building. When we are in a, a significant fight, uh, what we call a kinetic fight, that consumes all of your attention, all of your resources. But in places like, for instance, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have had some pretty big fights. You know, you think of things like Fallujah, you think of some of the, the smaller battles that we've had in Afghanistan. I spent some time in South Baghdad, and it was it was a dangerous place. Uh, not as concerned about stewarding the environment in those moments. But what we found is that pretty quickly in most conflicts, especially the conflicts of the past 18 years, the majority of your time is not spent fighting, per se, shooting at each other. Uh, there is always some of that going on, but the majority of people are involved in this idea of nation building or um, trying to restore economies and and health networks and schools and and really help the local population get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we know when the the more the more quickly the local population is able to get back on their own feet and sustain themselves, that's kind of key to our exit strategy, right? That's when we can go home. Well, so in order to build rapport and maintain rapport with a lot of those locals, you know, the, the environment that they live in, whether they're farming it, the water they're drinking, the air they're breathing, all of these things are, are things that we're there using that and having an impact on that, depending on the number of soldiers and what our mission is and the length of time we're there. But it doesn't really help our effort to sort of build up and, and build rapport with initially and then sort of help this local population get back on its feet if we're dumping stuff and just polluting their their water or or sort of you know not helping them take care of the land whether it's you know a lot of cases it's agriculture in rural areas or or things like that so um so it helps with our mission there too i mean it always for us it always comes back to mission but stewarding wherever we are whether it's our training areas at home or the, the operating environment when we're deployed somewhere Stewarding the environment is is part of what we're doing and requires both an awareness and in some cases it requires actually some action and planning on our part to do that. The word integrated comes to mind from what you're saying, which calls to mind integrity. And I feel like this has infused the Army's culture and, and behavior. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. 
That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I want to switch to, uh, we've been talking about the army. I'm reading a lot of passion on you on a personal level. And what does the environment mean to you on a personal level as an officer in, at, at West Point? Well, so, so I have, I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I was thinking about this uh, prior to coming over here to talk with you where my initial interest in the environment came from. And I, and I really can't say I, I spent a lot of time. I was in scouts as a kid and spent a lot of time outside. My, my, my father and I always like, you know, we like to hike and camp and do things outdoors. So I suppose that's, that's part of it. I've just, uh, I've always had an appreciation for the outdoors. I was an army brat. So I moved around and I got to see live in places like Alaska and Maine and, you know, places where you're just beautiful parts of our world. I lived overseas for a while and got to hike and ski in, in the Alps. And, and so I, that's probably part of it too. I think my, my interest in environmental engineering, uh, that certainly sparked my interest in the environment. And I've gone on to, while I was uh, spent most of my career as an infantry officer, uh, I've continued to enjoy, for recreational purposes, spending time outside now with my kids and my family. And so I think uh, I've always just appreciated the outdoors and, and, and the world we live in and, and, and taking care of it. I mean, it's anyone who spends time outside, I think, would agree, sometimes for very different reasons, but you know, we have limited resources. We have limited outdoor space. We have, we want to maintain a certain level of quality of whether it's air or water or, or the land. Um, and, and so I think that's my personal interest. And I've been able to do that, uh, not necessarily as an infantry officer per se, except, you know, we talked about some of the operational and training areas where, where, where I've been able to do that a little bit as a commander in the field. But now that I'm back on faculty here, clearly, I you know, have a department that's full of people who who teach this? We teach. We we have several things in our curriculum here where we where we get to teach about earth science, uh, about the environment, environmental systems, environmental engineering, and um, and and I love doing that. And I, I have a, a pretty diverse faculty who who cover sort of different areas in that, uh, from the engineering to sort of the land use planning and things like that. So I really like the seamless integration of things that I think a lot of people. I still can't get off of this of like how. From the outside perspective, and I'm just one person, but it seems like these are not so closely related, but for you, they're really integrated of, of family and the nation and land and honor and, and this culture of the military. It really weaves together in a way that I wouldn't have expected so seamlessly. You're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> why, why wouldn't it be that way? You heard my conversation with Everett, and I wonder if, uh, you know, one of the things I ask is if you'd be interested in Based on what you just talked about, of what it means to you of doing something to challenge yourself or just do uh, something that you might not have already been doing to act on the environment. Is, are you up for doing something? I Absolutely. I love stuff like this. Have you thought about it before before the conversation? Well, I did because I was in here. Uh, I, I heard that what you had challenged Everett and Everett and I have been close friends for since we were cadets. So. Uh, I didn't challenge him to, I offered him the you offered him, and he right. came up with it himself. He challenged yeah. himself, yes. So, so I have given a little bit of thought. Uh, actually, one of the things my, my daughters have, uh, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to go a route that my daughters have been sort of leaning. So I have a daughter who's in college and a daughter who's in high school and they have really been on sort of minimizing waste. And I know that's something that you're passionate about as well. Yes. So, yeah. so, um, Hard to do with the family. I have I've total of four kids and a dog, and uh, and we have lots of cadets over at our house, and so you know that kind of adds some challenges in minimizing waste. But I do want to reduce, and I was trying to think of a way to quantify that. So I'm open for suggestions. I think going for what's what did you, like a bag of trash, one bag of trash for a year is that bar is a little too high for me right now. 
It was for me at the beginning too. But I think um, what I'd like to do, and and I can, I think we can measure this if we measure in bags of trash. I would like to, not just me, but my family, if that's okay, make it a family challenge. Mm -hmm. If we could reduce our volume of trash by half Mm -hmm. um, moving forward. Have you been measuring your trash? Well, just in only in bags of average bags of trash per garbage pickup weekly. So (laughs) it's not very scientific, but I have actually a pretty good sense and. I think we were um, we were at about probably three to four kitchen garbage bags uh, a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see if we can cut that in half, and we've actually already started trying to do it a little bit. Cool, so yeah. Is that a good? Ch- I mean, is that worked? Is that is that a? Well, to me, the big thing is in in management and leadership. I think is it a smart goal? So specific, measurable, actionable, uh-huh. uh, realistic, time constraints. So mm-hmm. it sounds specific. It sounds measurable. That's why I asked if if you've been measuring this stuff. Over what time scale do you think it would? take to for this to be to know if it's working or not i think a month we'd probably have a pretty good sense that would be four garbage pickups so we at least have an initial indicator uh and uh we're already working on it and we're we're much more aware of of the uh, packaging in particular i mean that's where a lot of it comes from right so so packaging um, materials and trying to buy things that are not as heavily packaged and uh, use things like you know like um, mason jars are wonderful i love mason jars so it sounds to me like it sounds like one that you you're interested in. Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell people when they start, I, I usually warn people about two things. They may come up or they may not, but you you jumping right into it. So one is that other people tend to make challenges. When you're talking to me, you think, oh, I won't. Some people say I'll go for a month without any meat, and then they go and like mom cooks a mistake, and like, what do you do? <laughs> so you got to think about what's going to happen. Sure. But you, it sounds like your family's already in it. So, and also I point out, leaders look at other people as part of the solution, mm-hmm. not just part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But you have to prepare yourself for these things. The others travel. But if you're talking about in your house, then that's kind of taken care of. I think this is going to be one that I'm going to send you. There are two guests that I've had. One is B Johnson, who is a role model for me because her family for produces like a mason jar of trash per year. Wow. And I'm like, that, I'm not even close. And uh, Jim Harshaw, who went to UVA, he was a, a division one wrestler. Okay. And... His challenge was he was going to take public transportation. He's got four kids. And he came to me and he said, I don't know if I can do this because I'm spending too much time away from my family to do the public transportation instead of driving. Mm-hmm. I said, let's schedule a conversation 1.5. We'll do a little problem solving mm-hmm. session. Before that session, after we scheduled it and before we actually had it, he sat down with his family and he said, kids, I want to work this thing out. I want to do this thing. But also, I don't want to spend time less time with you. Mm-hmm. And they sat together and they came up with solutions. Cool. That instead of taking public transportation, he substituted carpooling to the kids' events with other families. Great. And they started reducing the amount of uh, packaging for lunch, sandwiches, stuff. And by the time conversation 1.5 rolled around, he'd already solved it. Mm-hmm. So you might want to listen to that conversation yeah, with Jim. Sure. So, yeah, I think it, I want to go back to all the security stuff, but I, I want to wrap up. And okay. hopefully we can talk about it more. Uh, anything, any, anything I didn't think to ask to bring up? Or any message to the listeners that you want to put out there? Oh, there's there's so much more we could talk about, and maybe we can we can meet again and, and discuss. So I would say that that uh, to the listeners, first of all, I would encourage anyone to come to West Point. You've been here uh, yourself a number of times now, and and I it's not I tell anyone who's listening, particularly if you're an, a U.S. citizen, this is your military academy. It's the United States Military Academy, and it's not my military academy. I'm here to help steward it and steer it in the right direction into the future. But I really encourage people to come visit. And 
Uh, particularly if you're if you're in the greater New York metro area, this is it's really not very far away. Yeah, I took the bus from from uh, Port Authority and it dropped me off right here. You can do that. You can you can take a train Metro North up to Garrison and it's right across the river. So Uber across or whatever, uh, it's it's not very far. Um, it's it's an amazing place. Look at it. Great new visitor center. So that's my plug to to come see West Point. I think the more people that see it and and learn about what we do here, I think it's it's helpful uh, to bridge sort of misunderstanding and and um, understand what we do and why we do it. We have about 4,400 cadets here. And then a small piece of what we do here is involves, we, we offer environmental engineering, environmental science, geography, uh, geospatial information science. We have, a, we have about 200 cadets a year take an environmental engineering sequence that it's a three-course sequence that they're not environmental engineering majors, but they may be humanities or so, so bottom line, we have cadets who are studying the environment and they're leaders and they're going to go out and lead their units and lead the army. And, you know, some of the things that we teach them, I'm going to leave you with, with our curriculum and, and, and you can take a look at that. But it really, uh, we are teaching cadets about the environment that they live in, that they'll train in and that they'll be operating in, not just here in the U.S., but around the world as we send them out for here. So um, we do, we teach them that it's important to, to take care of this this really precious resource or the resources that we have so that the next generation has them to train on or, or just enjoy. You know, I heard that earlier in my life and I took too long to take, take people up on that advice. So yeah. So I'll add to that. Like sooner, the sooner the better for yourself. And uh, Mark Reed, thank you very much. I'll talk to you again in a month. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. It makes us stronger. That's a military leader at the United States Military Academy at West Point talking about environmental stewardship. Who would have expected a top military leader to talk about woodpeckers and to act on it? A major initiative of the military these days is restoring economies and helping local populations. Stewarding the environment is fundamental. Does that sound familiar? Those are difficult situations they face, but it looks like a direction for modern militaries. Same with organizations that you're leading in the face of cultural change. I don't know what your organization does, but I bet its customers, employees, and community want more sustainability, not less, and you'll lose market share to a competitor who does it first, and the person who leads it will get promoted. I hope that civilian leaders learn from Mark's lead. I can't believe how much American businesses and other institutions are trailing the rest of the world in environmental stewardship. Let's do this. It starts with you and me, right here, right now. Can you commit to live by value of yours as Mark did, involving his whole family? inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast 
and commit to your personal challenge.